CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, June 9th starts now. On today's show, it's Oh What a Week Friday on the Ben Jarofsky show, and Ben is joined by Chicago-born and LA-based comedian Hope Rehack. Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. If you want to find more from Ben Jarofsky, just head on over to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-B as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Trump gets indicted Friday, and here's why. Well, I think you all know why. First of all, it's Oh What a Week. Joining me to be my partner in crime for this particular issue of Oh What a Week is Chicago comedian who actually lives in L.A., Hope Rehack. Uh, so Hope is standing by, ready to talk. Uh, just want to let people know I'm playing under tremendous constraints today. Uh, yesterday, the uh, Wi-Fi in my neighborhood crashed. Yes, yes, a horrible uh, incident in the life of a podcaster uh, who operates out of an attic overlooking an alley. I'm working on the phone. Thank you, producer Chris, for leading me through this. Uh, he has warned me many times, don't move the phone. You move the phone, people can't hear you. But Chris, I get so excited. I can start talking with my hands. I'm holding the phone. I can't even talk with my hands. I got one hand talking. The other hand is like, I want to talk too. Ben, Ben, you're moving too much. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm moving only my right hand, the left hand. All right, moving too much. All right. Uh, uh, Trump is indicted is uh, the story that's breaking as we speak. Uh, the details are coming in. Thank you, listener Frank, for texting me the immediate updates. Uh, Trump indicted Friday. Uh, he is indicted for passing hush money uh, to a stripper to cover up her tail. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry about that. That was the last indictment. Uh, I'm sorry. I apologize. He was indicted for sexually assaulting E.G. Carroll in the dressing room of Bergdorf Goldman. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. That was a conviction in a New York court. My bad. Oh, here it is. He was excited for calling up election officials in Georgia and telling them, telling them to throw away the votes that Biden got so that he, Trump, not Biden, would be the winner in Georgia. No, 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 no. That's a pending indictment that might happen in Georgia anytime soon. That's not the one that went down today. Oh, here's what it is. He was indicted for stirring up an insurrection on January 6th to intimidate Vice President Michael Pence, like physically threatening Michael Pence uh, into proclaiming Trump the winner of an election that Trump had actually lost to Joe Biden. No, 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 no. That's another pending indictment that hasn't come down yet. Sorry, that's not the one today. Ah, uh, yes. He was indicted for taking secret documents. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is the most, this is the dumbest thing he's done. Now, I realize the list is long. 
He took documents that didn't belong to him, that belonged to the government. He left when he left the White House, put them in boxes, took them to Mar-a-Lago, put them in the basement in Mar-a-Lago, his palatial mansion play thing down in Florida, kept them there, even though the government officials were saying, calling up, going, please, President Trump, please return the documents that are not yours. They belong to the government. Please return them. Please return them. He steadfastly refused to return them. They kind of like was turning it into a negotiating session. This is the way Trump's brain works. You know, he's like, oh, I got something you want? Well, if you want me to give it to you, you got to give me something. <laughs> and it's like, it doesn't work that way. So finally, the FBI went in and seized the documents, and he still resisted. Like, all of a sudden, there's other documents that he's uh, held back on. And eventually, he was indicted. And that's the indictment that came down, I guess, yesterday. Uh, and the details are breaking today. So Donald Trump will be now facing two indictments, one in New York, uh, in uh, state court in New York with the hush money, one here in uh, out of Florida having to do with the stolen documents, the documents that he shouldn't have taken, and did take and should have given back, but didn't give back. Uh, and then, of course, there's the outstanding indictments that are pending. Uh, in uh, Washington and uh, for the insurrection and in Georgia for trying to uh, steal the votes uh, needed to uh, defeat Biden in an election that Trump actually lost. The man celebrating, as always, is Monroe Anderson. He'll be back Wednesday. If you recall, on Wednesday's show, Monroe predicted that before he returned to the show next Wednesday, Trump would be indicted. It took one day. Uh, Monroe would call me up yesterday to uh, pound his chest and say, I told you. I told you. I got to give a shout out at this point before I bring on Hope to get her thoughts on this uh, to uh, Lynn Sweet of the Chicago Sun-Times. And uh, she wrote a column today uh, that very skillfully, in my humble opinion, sort of summed up uh, how Trump uses these indictments to his political advantage. Uh, and there's like certain phases in a Trump reaction. Here we go. Tr certain phases in any Trump reaction to any time he gets into trouble. The headline is dipping into his familiar playbook, Trump plays victim to set narrative, a very straightforward headline uh, that sums it up. So here's essentially it's like a five part process. All right. Number one, uh, after the indictment occurs or after uh, he's called out for his wrongdoing, he immediately has a press conference or dispatches some kind of email uh, or truth, I guess that's what he calls it. In the old day, it would be a tweet where he plays the victim. Oh, poor, poor me, sobbing for himself. The second phase is he maligns the prosecution, uh, the prosecution as a witch hunt, as though, again, he is being set upon for his political beliefs he's, as it's, he's the victim. Then number three, he trashes the prosecutor. This is the same thing every time. He looks for any way he can to malign the prosecutor. In this case, he's trying to pretend as though that somehow or other Jack Smith, the prosecutor, is biased because Jack Smith's wife is a Democrat, which is an absolutely hilarious counterattack considering that Republicans get so outraged, so outraged when anybody points out that Clarence Thomas may have a conflict of interest since his wife, Jimmy Thomas, is like a re leading MAGA activist who is work working in concert with Trump and the Trumpists to overturn the election. Whenever you say, oh, my God, Jimmy Thomas is a Republican activist who's working on behalf of the Republican Party, 
that must have an impact on her husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. MAGA everywhere is outraged. How dare, how dare you call into question the integrity of Clarence Thomas and his lovely wife. So that's an interesting little uh, twist for Donald Trump where he crashes uh, the prosecution uh, and then uh, four, changes the conversation. And we changes the conversation. It's generally to say a Democrat has done much worse uh, in this case, he's trying not to say that uh, Joe Biden somehow or other did much worse because Joe Biden, too, when he was vice president, took some documents out of the White House. The difference, of course, as soon as Joe Biden was notified that the documents had been taken out of the White House, he gave them back. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. He didn't resist for months and months and months. Uh, and then, oh, this is the one that uh, Lynn Sweet didn't mention, but I'll mention it. Next up is the shakedown where he says, they're, they're picking on me. And when they pick on me, they're really picking on you. So give money to me so I can protect you from being picked on, even though nobody's picking on any MAGA person. Nobody's trying to indict a MAGA person because MAGA didn't steal the documents. Trump did. But MAGA is like, oh, yeah. They're picking on me by picking on Donald. And if they could do it to Donald, they could do it to me. I'll send them money. Mag, I'm going to bring something to you. If you had stolen national, <laughs> federal documents that were marked top secret and you put them in your basement, you'd already be in prison. <laughs> You're picking on Trump. He's getting special advantages. The fact that he's not in prison right now is a huge special advantage. Look, I believe in transparency. The libertarian me is kind of like sympathetic in a weird, twisted kind of way to uh, the notion that all documents should be open. I'd like to know what exact documents he took and why they are uh, top secret. Maybe they shouldn't be top secret. But the reality is this. The rules of the game are they're top secret. You can't take them. If you took a MAGA, you would be in prison already. You'd be right now, uh, witch hunt emails all you want. You'd still be in prison. So instead of being picked on, Donald Trump is actually the beneficiary of special favors. But of course, MAGA doesn't buy that. MAGA is sending him the money. Ding, 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 ding. These indictments are a boon for Trump. It's how he raises money. These indictments politically are a boon for Trump. It's how he intimidates the opposition. Already, Ron DeSantis doesn't know what to say, what to do. Mike Pence is like hiding under a bed. You know, if you rip Trump, which is what they should do because they're running against him, then MAGA gets mad at them. So they have to kind of like rip the prosecution, which makes Trump look like a hero to, in the eyes of the Republican voters. So they're actually elevating Trump when they really want to bring him down. Really crazy game, politically speaking, going on right now. So in a weird way, the prosecution did Trump a favor. Instead of crying about them, he should be sending them flowers. All right, without further ado, I'm bringing on the great comedian, Hope Rehack. Proud graduate of Whitney Young High School. I will never, ever, ever make that mistake again. Hope react of getting the wrong high school as I did in the pre-show pre production meeting. Welcome to the show, Hope. 
Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm such a big fan. As I said, I know it embarrasses you, but I am a lifelong reader and fan. So delighted to be here. Uh, all right. Uh, before we get your thoughts uh, on uh, Donald Trump and the indictment and your, uh, what, the other news items you want to riff on for the day, uh, you are a comedian. You are based in L.A. Is there anything else you want to tell uh, listeners before we move on to your thoughts on Trump? No, I have a couple of projects I can't announce yet, but I the best place to find me is on Instagram and Twitter at Hope Rehack. Everywhere, everywhere I'm under my real name. I never, I'm not a coward. I have all of it out there. So that's the place to keep keep up to date with everything going on with me. Thanks, though. All right, very good. All right, Hope, your thoughts on Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it, obviously. I worked adjacent to the law for a really long time in a bunch of jobs. For most of my working life, I've been adjacent to the law. And it kind of made me not believe in the law at all, uh, because I think that people like Trump with money and power sort of never pay the way that that a common person would, to your point about the average MAGA guy not uh, getting the kind of kid glove treatment that that Trump is going to get. So I don't have a lot of faith in our system. I I really I look forward to some kind of consequence for Trump, but I don't like wait with bated breath and I don't necessarily celebrate moments like this because you know, like you said, it's just such a double standard there. Everybody else would be in prison. And I just think he is incredibly gifted at hijacking white supremacist male grievance and things like this. He finds a way to turn them to his favor. And like you said, raise money. Uh, so it's hard for me to sort of celebrate this sort of thing when I kind of feel like he's gonna, as he's already started to do, hijack it for uh, nefarious purposes. I also think I mean, I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. I also very much think he's a Russian asset. So I do think of him as sort of a useful idiot in the sense of, sure, he's he's an idiot, but useful to certain people. And I'm I'm not comfortable with whatever documents he took being in his power for so long because I can't imagine that wasn't he wasn't benefiting from that in some way, either by making money off of it, by selling it to the highest bidder in some secret way or planning to like, I mean, I feel like there's enough out there about the way he operates to sort of think that way. And I guess I read I read too much uh, Milan Kundera, you know, the Czech novelist. I read too many of his books when I was younger. And so sometimes I get really in my head about sort of Cold War psychology. And I just think having a guy like Trump, even if he is genuinely a narcissist, and even if he genuinely isn't politically strategic, I think he is useful to people who are. I mean, Trump has a million lawyers, and he's useful to a lot of people. And I just think powerful people protect each other. And I, I don't see him paying for his crimes ever personally. Um, so it's hard for me to celebrate. But I, I you know, if, it, if it's helpful, if it's therapeutic for other people to cheer on the indictment today, I'm not stopping anyone. I just don't feel the same enthusiasm. All right. I got to follow up on a couple of things you said to get you to elaborate a bit. Uh, number one, R Russian asset. I wrote that down when you said it. Uh, and uh, useful idiot. Um, what did you mean by uh, Russian asset and useful idiot? I just, I, I always worry that this sounds too paranoid, but I think given the things he's actually factually done, like in that article, in the article in the New York Times that talked about the violations of sort of classified documents and top secrecy that we know he's done, like giving, having private meetings with people he's not supposed to, taking documents he's not supposed to. I think that it's helpful to anyone. I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a particularly patriotic or jingoistic American, but I do think that there are people in the world who find it very useful that 
he can be so easily controlled with the things that we know he's easily controlled by as far as, you know, attention, money, like you said, negotiations, uh, feeling powerful, feeling big, feeling important. I think there are, I think that that's kind of the duty of, you know, anyone in, let's say the diplomatic service, but also in intelligence, that's like the job of many, many people around the world to find those weaknesses and people with power and exploit them. And I think the fact that it happens like on a smaller scale in terms of, you know, if you watch the Americans or something like that, like something that, that like that, that can happen. It's, it would be naive to think that Trump being so foolish and being, uh, so easily manipulated isn't very useful to to certain people and certain interests around the world. Yeah, I think the the person you're leaving out without mentioning uh, is Putin. Uh, I've often I've been thinking since 2006. It's so obvious to me uh, that we talked about this sense so many times in the show uh, that Putin was essentially uh, uh, an ally of Trump. Put it mildly on Trump winning in 2016. He did everything he could to get Trump to win. Why? Uh, that's a whole range of speculation. There's so many people who deny that and under underplay that. Uh, people even on the left, the extreme left, that do it, and of course MAGA uh, yeah. makes fun of it. They, uh, but I, I take very seriously the fact that Putin interfered in the elections in order to help Trump. I still remember the impact of releasing uh, the private emails of the, um, the Democratic Party chieftains on the eve of the 2016 Democratic Convention and the turmoil yep. that caused in the convention between Bernie Sanders supporters and Hillary Clinton supporters. I still know Bernie Sanders supporters who are upset uh, yep. at the revelations of those emails that showed how the party uh, bigwigs were uh, sort of doing what they can to help Hillary Clinton win. So uh, obviously, uh, Putin was very much an asset to Trump in 2016. And uh, so I, that's where, when you said that, that's what I thought. Oh, okay, well, that relationship continues to this day. And some of these documents may reveal uh, the nature of that relationship between Russia, between Putin uh, and Trump. Um, and, uh, and then there's just always the possibility um, that, like I said, Donald Trump, he has something. Somebody wants it. You got to pay him. So he wanted exactly. money for it, um, which is utterly absurd. You don't own those documents. I think the funny thing that's going to emerge is like uh, the talking part from Trump on this is that he has the ability as the president uh, to uh, make them not uh, uh, public documents so they're uh, top secret he goes oh now i've made them public documents anybody could see them and in some cases yeah. like, he's never issued any official statement that these documents are public now you know what i mean it's like he thought about it uh yep. and that made him uh, public so now you know the uh the feds have apparently recordings of donald trump uh, saying oh i could be in trouble because i never made them public um declassified him is the word he always used so this is a story that's obviously uh, unfolding, uh, but hope my guess is is that whatever talking point Donald Trump is coming out with, it will yeah. be uh, repeated by uh, MAGA and the Republican candidates uh, going forward. So I'll be fun watching them parrot whatever Donald Trump says. All right, let's move on to what's on your mind. Uh, you have something on your mind that ha we have not discussed on this show. 
at all. Uh, although the person at the heart of this was discussed on this show about two years ago. Uh, so hope take it away with uh, your your thoughts on Hannah Gatsby. Go ahead. Sure. So um, about a week ago, there was, uh, I would say, an internet firestorm around the opening of an exhibit that Hannah Gadsby co-curated at the Brooklyn Museum in New York. Uh, and there was a New York, a subsequent New York Times critic by, I think his name is Jason Farrago, uh, a critical piece on it that basically, basically amounted to how dare this celebrity with but a uh, bachelor's degree in art history, like, dare to curate an exhibit about one of the greatest modernist painters of the 20th century. Um, and it kind of, it was this little mini culture war in a bottle in the sense that, that like many, many people on the internet who perhaps don't have a vested interest in art history or Picasso took sides because Hannah Gadsby is such a, I guess, lightning rod for uh, people who hate trans, non-binary, genderqueer women, femmes, like, just they just inspire Gatsby just inspires a lot of hate from those communities uh, everything that that Hannah Gatsby does uh, seems to incense a certain group of people and then on the other side people who were perhaps more defensive I would include myself among them um, in terms of what Hannah Gatsby was trying to do with this exhibit because in the review the critic discusses in a sort of in a, in a very, uh, I would say, condescending way, some of the things that Gadsby did in this exhibit, such as um, putting uh, their own thoughts as the, uh, the labels next to some of the Picasso paintings and putting them in conversation with female artists of Picasso's era and after. And basically the critic was saying that it wasn't a very sophisticated um, exhibit and that it very much seemed designed to appeal to like idiots on the internet. And the name of the exhibit is also pissing people off because it's called it's Pablomatic. And so there are certain people who feel like it's um, making fun of the institution of the museum and, and the institution of art, which obviously I think in some sense it is. Hannah Gadsby is a comedian. And uh, there's been some anger also from some I would say some MRA men's rights activist people that I have seen online um, at the fact that a comedian is even given this opportunity to co-curate an exhibit. And I just, I just think that's all um, that's just, a, it's a missed opportunity for comedy and visual art to be in conversation with each other. And what I think a lot of Americans don't know is that Hannah Gadsby actually did a TV show, I think in Australia um, about like an art history, like public access show for years and knows what they're talking about. And the general, like, I don't know, the vibe online of the critics of this piece are that Gadsby had no business doing something like this and that it's an unserious exhibit. And what I actually think is happening is it's it's an unusual exhibit that I have not been able to see. The, the um, critical review of it made me want to go to New York right now and go see it. It did not turn me off of what they're trying to do. I was really kind of inspired and intrigued by something that's intended to be accessible to people beyond the normal audience for an art exhibit. Well, all right. So... Uh, Hannah Gatsby, uh, as you uh, mentioned, uh, I, I don't think she would. I don't think they would call uh, themselves a stand-up comic. Uh, but that's essentially what Hannah Gatsby does. She stands up and she does comedy. Yeah. Uh, and I saw her. I saw the. Well, I forget the name of it. The first special on Netflix. It was Nanette. Cost, what's that? What's that? What was it Nanette. called? Nanette. Yes. 
I actually think I saw both of them now that I think about it. Um, and it, it provoked an outrage against Hannah Gatsby. And so many people that I know, when they hear the name Hannah Gatsby, they're like, I hate that. Fill in the blank. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what comes next, what word they use. And I read like Dave Chappelle took a shot at her. Yeah. Uh, Bill Burr, I believe, was taking a shot at her. Um, yep. Who else did you say took a shot at her? There Norm was a McDonald's. third. It my heart, Norm MacDonald, who of Norm whom McDonald. I was a fan. Yeah, took a really low shot at her. Yeah. So, what is it about Hannah Gatsby, in your humble opinion, that irritates the hell out of so many men? I know. I feel like I know exactly what it is, but Hannah Gatsby's entire project is to decenter the male frame of thinking as the default. That's literally their project. Like I, I read their book, 10 Steps to Nanette. I, I actually followed them since pre-Nanette because they were also on a show called Please Like Me. That was an Australian sitcom and they were a guest star and I really, really liked them a lot. I've seen them perform three times live. I've met them once. I'm like a big fan. And I just, I just think that they don't have to explain themselves to men, but they are actively trying to decenter the kinds of thinking that we are conditioned socially to think of as the default. And that's, that is, that is white supremacist heteropatriarchy. And I think a lot of people don't have the language to explain why that annoys them so much. But if you are a member of any of those groups, and sometimes, you know, it's a white woman on Twitter came after me for, for defending Hannah Gadsby last week. So sometimes it's not always who you'd expect, but it's this idea that like, uh, that sort of that kind of gatekeeping that that the Jason Farrago article kind of does, which is to say that this is not your place. This is not for you. How dare you come into this institution and do this thing differently? That's exactly that's kind of exactly what they're always trying to do. And they are a stand up. And and in their memoir, they talk a lot about how they developed their stand up voice around uh in the in the Australian and UK comic scene and how it's not always legible to an American audience. And and Hannah Gadsby in their book is like, I'm not really interested in being legible to an American audience because that's not who I was trying to do comedy for for the first 20 years of my career anyway. And so I feel like in some ways we in this country, because Hannah Gadsby is so famous here now, we're trying to kind of catch up to what their whole deal is. And I think it is annoying and frustrating to some people to not be like catered to and pandered to and handheld through their through their art. Yeah. Uh, and then the the way the critics uh, hit at Hannah's go, well, Hannah Gatsby's not funny. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of across the board. I, I, I follow very closely um, the controversies that erupt around comedians. Yeah. All, from all angles, you know, like from, I mean, the conventional left, the right. Uh, the, the Dave Chappelle controversies uh, when Dave Chappelle went on Saturday Night Live uh, right after Kanye West uh, yeah. and he did the bit uh, where he talked about uh, Jewish power in Hollywood I follow all this stuff I'm just that's yeah. a mini obsession of mine and the first thing they people, <laughs> they always say this is not funny and that like they dismiss it like you know, so it's just not funny. And then they get into what it is. And I'm like, you know, it, it kind of is funny. I, 
I feel like you protest too much. Like I had my issues with Dave Chappelle's bit on Saturday Night Live from, uh, I forgot my details of it, but, but there were parts of it that had me laughing out loud. Yeah. And the same thing with Hannah Gatsby. There were parts of those two specials I saw that I was laughing. So what is it, what's going on when they always go, if they don't like the message, they go, well, it's, yeah. first of all, it's not funny. Yeah. Well, Why are they trying to do that? Go ahead. Well, it's too, I'm so glad we're talking about this. This is sort of my bread and butter. I care a lot about this, but it's, it's two, it serves two functions and whether the people saying it know that it's serving these functions or not is sort of beside the point, but it serves two functions. Number one, I've been to see Hannah Gadsby live three times, including once when I saw them working at their show, Douglas at the Chicago theater downtown in downtown Chicago. And it was totally sold out. And that audience was primarily female and primarily gay. It was every lesbian in Chicago that I knew. And I know a lot because I worked with women and children first for a long time. Every single lesbian from the city and the suburbs was in that audience. Every like every cool progressive woman and queer person and non and non-binary person I knew was in that audience. And we were all laughing and we're not laughing to prove a political point. It is funny to us. And so when there are people and it can be of any gender, but when a lot of times men are like, oh, it's not funny. What they're saying is that it's not funny to them. On the one hand, that's what they're saying. And they also think that they're the arbiters of what is funny because Hannah Gadsby has a huge audience that does find them very funny. Um, and so they're basically saying that that audience doesn't matter and they alone are the gatekeepers of what is objectively funny, which is a very Christopher Hitchens way of going about things. But, uh, you know, I, I don't really abide that kind of self-centeredness because it's basically saying there's no way anyone else can find this funny. But then on the other hand, the second thing it's doing is delegitimizing the power of having a platform that large and an audience that loves you that much. Hannah Gadsby has a large platform, has an audience that follows her. When people say Hannah Gadsby isn't funny, what they're saying is that audience doesn't matter to them. And that audience Women, non-binary people, queer people know that already. We already know we don't matter to Norm Macdonald and Dave Chappelle. That's like beside the point to us. Like you can, I try to enjoy Hannah Gadsby as a, as a comedian who makes me laugh and who I feel speaks to me on so many different levels. And so when I hear someone say that they don't think they're funny, I'm like, okay, that's really about you. Lucky, lucky for you, Hannah Gadsby doing a show doesn't take away from you going to see John Mulaney do a show. I'm also a John Mulaney fan. Like it doesn't take away that doesn't work for you. But I think what people forget is to use I statements and say, I don't find this person funny, but we do this all the time. I mean, Ben, you know this because you are a comedy fan. I'm a comedy fan. We, we know there are black rooms and white rooms. We know that there are crossover comics. There have always historically been comedians like Hannibal Burris, who like starts maybe South and West side Chicago becomes broadly appealing does a crossover. Same with Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is a crossover comic. Chris Rock, crossover comic. Like Wanda Sykes, crossover comic. There's plenty of people who start out speaking to people in their own demographic who then are able to cross over into a general mainstream appeal. And I think something that's uncomfortable about Hannah Gadsby for Americans specifically is that we haven't seen exactly that journey of a white foreign. I got accused on Twitter of being racist because I said she's foreign, but it matters that she's Australian. She came up in a different tradition of stand-up than what than what happens here but it's like their journey is exactly is is not something we've seen before we've seen plenty of like in this country cross-racial crossover comic acts but we don't always see someone going from like the alt scene in australia for like the lgbtq audience to a mainstream netflix special and people are really grappling with it and it really triggers them. It really triggers a lot of people. I would say deeply unnecessarily. You can just ignore it if you don't like it. Yeah. You know, when I'm listening, I'm thinking that um, 
what really triggers people is when they're the punchline. Follow me in this. Um, so Dave Chappelle makes trans women the punchline of his jokes. Yeah. And uh, then he got criticized for it. So he doubled down. Yeah. Because, oh, well, he's stubborn, doesn't want to admit he's wrong, uh, doesn't want to admit that he exhibited uh, like a prejudice or a hatred or yeah. that he was encouraging prejudice or hatred. Uh, I guess he feels he's above criticism, you know, instead of saying, yeah, man, maybe I should reconsider what I'm doing or maybe think about what I'm doing. Oh, he doubles down on it. And it's all, you know, it was all basically uh, hope. It was all like with Dave Chappelle, a dick joke. It was all yeah. like the whole joke was a dick joke. And think about it. It was like this, this person is dressed up like a woman, but I could see their dick. And that was the yeah. joke. And we were like, <laughs> yeah. You know? And and then, <laughs> and it's like to a guy, a dick joke is funny. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's like, oh, that's yeah. great humor, Dave. You're, you're brilliant. <laughs> it's just a dick but joke. You, but, you, but I feel like you also know this. I feel like any student of comedy knows this too. The the problem or the thing that happened there was the punching down quality, like the, the punching down thing. So you're not supposed to punch down in comedy. You're only supposed to punch up. And I think what's happening, I think the meta conversation behind the Dave Chappelle and transphobia jokes is that Dave Chappelle still thinks of himself as punching up in that situation. But I think people from those communities recognize that it's really a punch down. And I think that's the sort of central issue with comics who refuse to change their material. And a lot of these guys, I'm saying guys, but a lot of, a lot of comics are, it's outsider art. Comedy is an outsider art. So they come up in a scene where they are the minority, no matter what that means. It doesn't always have to mean you're Dave Chappelle, but you're always somehow a minority in whatever situation that you're in. That's why there are so many Jewish people in comedy. That's why there are, you know, so many genderqueer people in comedy and black people in comedy. It is a, it is an outsider art. And so you have to come up learning very, very delicate power imbalances because you only know how to make a joke if you know where the power is. And I think the thing that happens with guys like Dave Chappelle, in my humble opinion, and Chris Rock too, is that they get to a certain amount of power and prestige and they still see themselves as this, this outsider to the system when they are now full of power and money and actually have platforms that could do real damage. And I think Dave Chappelle doesn't recognize that like by punching down on trans women, he is contributing to like material harm that they face. I think he can't see that. Yeah. Uh, and also nobody likes to be uh, the punchline of a joke. Nobody, even a comedian doesn't want to be the punchline of a joke. Uh, yeah. And uh, so they, then that's when they go, oh, it's not funny. You know, <laughs> it's not right. funny. I mean, I know right. what funny is. And like, I would laugh if I thought it was funny, but it's not funny. So I'm not going to laugh. <laughs> okay. Or, exactly. Um, and uh, I, I have to admit that uh, I urge everybody to, uh, to check out the review that the the review of, uh, I forget old, old boy's name, Jacob or something. What's the, what's the reviewer's Jason, name? Jason My, I, 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 I apologize, Jason. Didn't mean to call you Jacob. Um, it's funny because it is funny because he's so huffy. He's so huffy. <laughs> he's so huffy. I'm like, what do you care? Pablo Picasso, first of all, has been dead for 50 years, number one. Number two, like, Pablo Picasso's reputation can handle anything Hannah brings at him, okay? It's That's just, 
you know, it. <laughs> you're like, Pablo Picasso doesn't need you to defend him. I'm outraged for all of art. <laughs> it's, exactly. He's so happy and offended by it. Made me want to see it. You know, I got to tell you the truth. I mean, it's at the Brooklyn Museum, and I don't think I'm going to go into New York anytime soon, so I'll probably miss it. Maybe it'll come to Chicago. Uh, but um, I just had a laugh because the dude was so upset and outraged. How dare she? This is Pablo <laughs> Picasso, and those jokes aren't funny. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, very, very huffy indeed. All right. Um, so wait, time out. Are you going to get a chance to see the exhibit? Are you going to be going to New York anytime soon? I'm literally trying to plan a trip around seeing it, but it's new as of last week. I didn't even know this existed until last Friday. My sister's out there right now, so I'm going to try to visit her while while she has a place for me to stay and go all right, see well, it. You'll, you'll be our correspondent. Let us know how it is. Um, sure. All right. Uh, the other big news in the, in the world of uh, the Supreme Court uh, is was kind of lost with the Trump indictment. Uh, actually, I hope I was going to lead with this uh, when the story broke yesterday, uh, and then Trump got indicted. Um, but uh, the headline in the uh, New York Times says it all. In turnabout court rules, MAP denied black voters. And let me just take a little time to explain what's going on, uh, ladies and gentlemen. This had to do uh, with a challenge to the congressional MAP in uh, the state of Alabama, sweet home Alabama. Uh, and um, by the way, I just on a tangent, within a tangent, I must, I was visiting my family in LA. I was in the Los Angeles airport. I was at the Rock and Brew, which is a restaurant in the airport. The LA airport, I'm gonna put you down LAX. You have the worst food. I'm just putting it out there. The worst, if you're stuck at an LA airport and you don't have like a, a bagel or something, good luck. So, uh, so I was at the, I said, well, I go to Rock Brew. I'm eating a really horrible uh, fried chicken sandwich. It was bad for me. And the Rock and Brew, as the name suggests, uh, it serves beer and they feature rock stars. And so they're, they have like Bruce Springsteen and the Rolling Stones and John Mellencamp playing little like videos of them. And on comes Sweet Home Alabama, which is a song by Leonard Skinner from 1970s, which is like a champion of like Alabama and all a very mixed statement. I'm not quite sure uh, if Leonard Skinner knew or cared uh, what they were championing in their song. At one point, they're flying the Confederate flag in the song. I'm like, guys, do you know what you're doing when you're flying the Confederate, Confederate flag in the song, what that means? Uh, Sweet home Alabama, it's our, it's our culture. All right, okay. Anyway, so that's kind of where Alabama's coming from, ladies and gentlemen, politically speaking. They designed a map in the state house, which is controlled by Republicans, in which they divided the state uh, it's so artfully that a state that is 26% black, um, ended up with all like the black people in the state in one district. So that seven, there's seven congressional seats, six are Republican, one is Democrat. That my friends is excellent gerrymandering. That is taking advantage of, of the map in such a way as to guarantee your control it all. If you wonder why that Republicans control the Congress right now, Part of it is the ineptitude of New York Democrats. We'll leave that to the side. But most of it is because of the skillfulness 
of Republicans throughout the country at gerrymandering their states so that they maximize Republican power and minimize Democrat power. And they did this in Alabama in such a way as to really like take away the voting power, dilute the voting power of black citizens. And so uh, activists in Alabama challenged the map on the grounds that it was unconstitutionally racist. It undercut the power of black citizens. You can't effectively, in this day and age, challenge a map, or it's just mixed results, and challenging a map uh, because it just gerrymanders the state to the advantage of a political party, like, like, like they did in North Carolina and Wisconsin and Michigan. But you have better, a better chance, usually, if you say it violates the Voting Rights Act in such a way as to discriminate against black voters. So this um, provision has been diluted in a series of Supreme Court rulings, most notably the Shelby County ruling also took place in Alabama. It came before the Supremes again, and most experts predicted that the Supremes with the Trump appointees would uh, rule in such a way as to uh, eviscerate the Voting Rights Act and, and essentially approve a map that uh, dilutes the power of black electorates. To the amazement of pretty much everyone in the universe, the ruling went the other way, 5-4. John Roberts, the uh, chief justice, joined with the three liberals on the court and somehow or other got Brett Kavanaugh. And this is the part, Hope, I'm still scratching my head over. What was he doing there to be the fifth to uh, essentially rule with the plaintiffs, say that uh, it discriminated against black people and forced the legislature uh, in Alabama to go back to the drawing board and redraw the map in such a way uh, as to give and put blacks give, uh, a greater say in a second congressional district. So the end result could be instead of six to one Republicans, uh, five to two Democrats in that congressional makeup. Uh, there's similar challenges in Louisiana uh, and Texas and Florida. So if the ruling becomes precedent, the Dems could take back Congress. This is why it's important. You, the Republicans hold on to Congress because they've effectively gerrymandered the hell out of the maps and they've made themselves, even though they're a minority party, the majority party. That's why it's so important. And I, to this, I, I hope I was stunned. I'm like, Kavanaugh, <laughs> the guy who got his start with Ken Starr impeaching Bill Clinton, the Republican operative, the the guy who denounced the Clintons at his nomination here. Remember that? I, you know, they're still picking on me, <laughs> Kavanaugh, and I, I'm stunned. I know you've been following the Supremes on a couple of other affirmative action cases. You want to get into? I'm not quite sure what to make of this. There's a part of me that thinks it's somehow other John Roberts does not want this court to be viewed too much as a Republican rubber stamp, you know, like they did uh, with the abortion ruling uh, when they eviscerated Roe. Um, I'm, 
I guess that's John Roberts. I don't I see him being that more pragmatic. I never thought he'd get Kavanaugh to be the one who joined him uh, on this. Uh, your thoughts about all this, where the Supreme, what this means with the, for the Supremes and where they're going. Well, sure. I mean, I, I loved in our, we, we, we talked about it a little bit and you, you made a joke about maybe Brett Kavanaugh having a midlife, like progressive crisis, which I think is hilarious. I want, I want to live in that world. Then I think that's so funny. And I want, and I want that movie too, like Brett Kavanaugh visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future to fix him because he's so deeply broken. Um, I have a hard time believing it because I'm a deeply cynical person. So I think that what it is, I think actually it's funny that we're talking about it in conversation with these two affirmative action cases that are going to be ruled on this month, because I do think it was a little bit of a um, concession to your point of maybe making the court seem slightly less, as you said, a conservative rubber stamping body, uh, especially at this time when they're kind of under fire for it. And I think with these two affirmative action cases coming up where the court is predicted to strike down affirmative action in two cases uh, uh, this month, uh, which Kavanaugh is absolutely expected to vote with the conservative majority on. It seems a little bit like, um, like, a, see, we can't be racist. I like I just voted. I just voted on this thing in Alabama. And I'm about to do extreme major systemic institutional damage with these two affirmative action cases and this is like the we we strategically decided this would be the one i'd take the l on it's like there's that name i can't i'm not going to remember it but it's that word for uh whatever it is it's like the rotating um the rotating like the person that you blame it's like the person in congress who's always uh the one holdout vote uh, and everybody takes a turn doing it and i feel like this was kavanaugh's I, I can't I can't pretend to know his heart, although, as we discussed, I did read She Said by Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, and there were several chapters on the Kavanaugh hearings uh, with Christine Blasey Ford, and I have my opinions about him. Do I think he had a change of heart? No. Do I think it was politically savvy to have this come out right before the two affirmative action cases? Yeah. I think it was strategic. Well, uh, I don't think it's going to work. Uh, <laughs> I think it will, I don't, I mean, when I put it this way, I don't think one ruling uh, by Brett Kavanaugh uh, will be enough to uh, dismiss the um, the skepticism, to put it mildly, that many of us have about the Supreme Court. And I'm speaking as euphemistically as I can. Uh, sure. You know, they, they act like a bunch of... Um, partisan hacks. Uh, so I work from the assumption that they would always act as partisan hacks. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not sure it, it's, if it is tactical, it will work. Uh, but I could see them trying something like that, particularly John Roberts, who I says is, has had a pragmatic uh, streak to him. Um, I, I could go on and on. Um, about the dangers embedded in the, the ruling of uh, the other side in this case, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And I'll probably be taking a deeper dive in this next week. What a piece of work this man is. Uh, and he, he was outraged. His, his, uh, his decision, he was just outraged at the five who ruled against it. And, um, he kept saying that uh, this was essentially a racial entitlement. Uh, like if you make a decision that 
the um, the map as drawn is undercutting the voting rights of uh, black Alabamans and you change the map so that it's no longer doing that. That's an entitlement to black people. And I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't the map as it now written an entitlement to white people? Why is it only a racial entitlement when you try to, when you try to redress a prejudice? Why is that in a, a, a racial entitlement? But it's not a racial entitlement in such a way to draw the map that all the black people are put essentially in one district so you maximize the voter power of the white people. How is that not a racial entitlement? Why is it only a racial entitlement when something, quote unquote, benefits black people? And why is the black member, uh, one of the two black members on the Supreme Court, the one making the argument that somehow or other, black people are the beneficiaries, <laughs> are somehow the beneficiaries of the the the, uh, the decisions in this country. You know what I'm saying? Like, wait, have you been, been paying attention to the entire history of race relations in the United States? It's like, you're defending white people from yeah. black power? Yeah. Even though in this case, it's white people who have the power. Hope, I'm telling you, man, it's like up is down is down is up with this with these MAGA types. And uh, that's why I was stunned that Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, it just seemed like Brett should have been part of that Clarence Thomas team. He caught me off guard. Uh, now, yes, I have this theory that Brett Kavanaugh may be going through a midlife crisis is more of a joke than a real belief. Uh, I had it when I was walking. I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe he's taking view of his life. Go, God, I've just been such an ass my entire life. I'm going to change it. You just read the book. So tell yeah. me a little, give me some insights on Brett Kavanaugh that I should know uh, that might help me. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I have to say that their deep dive, they worked with um, Christine Blasey Ford after, like, after she came forward, they kind of recount her process of coming forward and in, in great detail. And then and then sort of how how unwilling she was to play a political role. She was not overly involved in politics, did not really see the fallout that was going to happen when she first contacted her. She contacted like her congressional representative in wherever she lives, like Monterey or Palo Alto or something, and just thought like this, just thought she should quietly say this and like worked with Diane Feinstein to try to get her comments on the record without it being public and tried to actually spare Brett Kavanaugh whatever embarrassment he eventually faced, which was just part of that story that I didn't know because like a lot of people, I watched the hearings live, but I didn't know what had led to that point. And I think the thing that comes up the most, comes across the most strongly and she said, which I really do recommend, although it's a hard read, is the way that um, that like an individual's uh, expressions of sexist violence, uh, they kind of talk about Weinstein and they talk about Kavanaugh, how that does have the potential to affect the rest of us, especially when these men like Weinstein, who shaped Hollywood for 20 years and Kavanaugh, who will shape the court for many years to come, how it kind of does um, like whatever their particular prejudices are. The fact that Kavanaugh, according to this woman, you know, assaulted her as a teenager and he's like, so what? I was drunk. I was a teenager and I don't remember it. That kind of gives away that you perhaps don't think of a teenage girl as 
uh, a thinking person who's perhaps entitled to her own bodily autonomy, which kind of gave the game away that he would, of course, eventually side with the conservative majority um, when they when they struck down Roe and Hobbes last year. And it's just it's just one of those things that um, I think can't be stated enough because we get bogged down into these conversations about what people truly believe, quote unquote. And I do not care anymore what people truly believe. I really only care about the material harm that they do. And Kavanaugh has done a lot of material harm that I would say is could have been predicted by those hearings. Yeah. Uh, so it's very unlikely that he's having a midlife crisis. Uh, I, it's just a fantasy of mine. And we'll see in the I next two. Uh, well, we'll know. Uh, we'll see these again, these affirmative actions. They may be coming out today already while we're doing this, having this conversation anytime soon. You know, the time of the year, the Supremes uh, release their uh, decisions. All right. We'll close with a little local news. Uh, yeah, in the city of Chicago, your beloved hometown, uh, the new day in City Hall, Mayor Brandon Johnson at a press conference talking uh, about uh, parental leave. Take it away. I uh, hope I know this is on your mind. Oh, yeah, it's really on my mind. I mean, uh, so so I read about it first in the tribe on Instagram and then uh, and then again in the Sun-Times today. And it, it looks like Brandon Johnson was going to have the CPS policy uh, for CTU teachers in alignment with the rest of municipal employees. And I think that makes a great deal of sense. And I couldn't believe some of the pushback that I saw on the internet about how Lightfoot had wanted it to be something that was negotiated at the bargaining table. And basically, Brandon Johnson was getting some criticism from the uh, expected parties in the media about how he just gave, like, seemingly gave this away to the CTU as if, as if, as if paternity, maternity, family leave is again some kind of entitlement rather than something that the rest of the developed world has. And personally, like, I don't think it should be left up to employers anyway. But as long as it is up to employers, I think it's setting a great example for the city of Chicago to have a singular policy for all city employees. It makes a great amount of sense. CPS teachers are city employees. They should have the same leave as other city workers. And especially in a union, as Stacey Davis Gates always sort of reiterates in these moments, a union that has historically been primarily female, predominantly women of color, those are birthing parents. They're often birthing parents. And oftentimes a lack of maternity and family leave can take women especially out of the workforce. I know I've had several friends leave um, teaching. I'm a graduate of CPS. I have friends now who are CTU teachers. I'm the daughter of a CTU teacher. Uh, many, many friends of mine, I'm in my 30s, like a woman of my age, I've had friends leave for this reason, that they could not have time with their children after adoption and birthing. And and I think it's a, it's a great step to remedying that. And I'm really grateful that Brandon Johnson seems to be treating the CTU as an ally instead of as, a, I don't know, an antagonist the way that Mary, Mayor Lightfoot did for so long. Yeah, I'm going to close by tying a few themes together uh, that are just kind of forming my brain right now. So Lord knows how it'll sound. I get your response. But the powers that be in the city of Chicago, I call main, uh, mainstream Chicago the civic community, the editorial community, the corporate community, uh, they have an aversion to the Chicago Teachers Union that's sort of like what male comics have to our Hannah Gatsby. They hate the Chicago Teachers Union. And there's something about the Chicago Teachers Union that 
to use a millennialistic word, triggers them. Yeah. I'm not even sure they realize they're being triggered. But in this particular case, as you pointed out, there's a policy that the city of Chicago has regarding maternity leave that the teachers of Chicago wanted. And Lori Lightfoot was like, oh, you want something? You got to negotiate with us. You got to give it up. So what are you going to give us in exchange for us giving you what we give everybody else? And the Chicago Teachers Union was like, wait, this should not be a thing of negotiation. Hello? This should be something like a human right that a civilized city has. (laughs) Why are we negotiating this? It'd be like if they said, all right, if you want to be able to use a washroom, yeah. where everybody uses a washroom, Black people, give us something up. Give yeah. something up to us, and then we'll allow you. Wait, wait. It would be unbelievable racial discrimination to have it any other way. Yeah. But it, like, it's like a madness overtakes mainstream Chicago because they, I don't know what it is. Oh, they, like they, is it because it's women in charge? Is it because yes. of like the Chicago teacher? I, I, yes, I'm answering my own question. Yes. <laughs> it's mostly women, the teachers, the, the leaders of the union since, uh, well, gosh, even before Karen Lewis uh, have been, were women, powerful women. Karen Lewis, they still are mad at her because she stood yep. up to Rom, made him yep. look bad. And yes. they can't stand Stacey Davis Gates. There's something about Stacey Davis Gates that drives them crazy. And so yeah. it's like, like they're mad. Oh, Brandon, when are you ever going to say no to the teachers' union? <laughs> I'm like, why would he say no on this? The real question is, why didn't Lori Lightfoot say yes? And I hope, I think all of them need a little uh, therapy. I'm, I'm just speaking, mom. <laughs> they got to go to a therapist and talk about why it is they hate the Chicago Teachers' Union so much. Do you have a theory as to why they hate the Chicago Teachers Union so much? Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's it I it has been in recent memory, you know, I mean, run by strong black women and you know, with a couple of a couple of Jesse Sharkies in there, you know. But uh but I mean I think that that really pisses people off. I think that nationally there are very few public unions left with the kind of power to enact change that the CTU still has maintained. And I actually, I I hear everything you're saying about mainstream Chicago, but on the ground, and I'm sure you were there too, in 2012 with the strike and 2019 with the strike, I am not a teacher, but I was on the picket line with teachers. And I actually felt like the majority of the city was extremely on their side. And sometimes I feel that the the sort of media case against the teachers is overblown um, and not exactly how it always feels on the ground. Like I have to say the people in my immediate life who have been the most critical of the CTU are people in my extended family who live in the suburbs who are for some reason just mad about everything to do with Chicago. But my like <laughs> Chicago people, people who vote and live in the city of Chicago for the most part have always been really supportive. And the truth is the CTU wouldn't have the power that they have if the city wasn't actually supportive. And I'm talking about everyday people like myself, taxpayers who don't work in education, who just see the good that it does. And I think the other thing too, is that we can't, I can't overstate how, how sexist and how 
racialized uh, the, the, the distaste for and contempt for care work is. And teaching, especially in the pandemic, much like nursing, is effectively, it's a, it's a feminized profession, whether or not an individual is a woman working in it. My dad was a teacher, so he's a man. But it's a feminized profession in that it's taking care of children. And I think the culture, the American culture at large, doesn't value that because it's not a money making it's not a money making institution you know usually people are respected for how much money they're able to make in a certain profession teaching and nursing tend to be jobs that only make money because of the power of unions and don't make typically six figures or up in doing so and that is because we we so undervalue care work in our society that's a good riff. Well put. Uh, and I, when you mentioned Cherokee, I'm going to close with this. I mean, you mentioned I smile. So, uh, yes, the president of Chicago Teacher Union was a man uh, for about, let me see, I can do this, Bob, shoot, oh, man, five years. Sorry, Jesse, if I got it wrong one way or the other. In between Karen Lewis and uh, SDG, Stacey Davis-Gates, it was Jesse Sharkey. But I got to tell you this. Hope you have no idea how many people have told me. People always coming up in confidence, telling, oh, this is off the record, Ben, but, you know, the real power at Chicago Teacher Union is not Jesse Sharkey. <laughs> no, it's Stacey Davis Gates. Even then, it'd be like, she's behind the scenes controlling him. It'd be like Jesse was his puppet and dangling from the strings, and there was Stacey Davis Gates. You're going to do this. You're going to say that. You're going <laughs> to. I'm like, guys, you are so twisted. Just you guys, you you are so filled with hate and disdain for Stacey Davis Gates. You make her like this evil temptress behind the scenes. So yeah, yeah. even when it was Jesse Sharkey, I can tell you how a lot of people and, and men and women, yeah, not just men, but some women out there too who are like, you know, loving Lori Lightfoot women. The Lloyd Lightfoot supporters, then the real person behind the scenes, Stacey Davis cases. It's, it's really twisted. Oh, I'm telling you, it's, it's pretty twisted. Well, I'm a huge fan of her. I'm saying it on the record. Big fan. Followed her on Twitter for years. I think it's great. I think the CTU is in great hands. And uh, and those people can just stay mad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's, it's the same crowd that's mad at uh, Hannah Gatsby. All right, Hope Rehack, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. It was a blast. We covered a lot of ground, national, cultural, and local. So good job, all right? Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that's a great Hope Rehack. And I also want to thank uh, producer Chris, did an outstanding job as he always did, particularly today with all the disadvantages of me doing this on a phone. It's only It only interrupted, I don't know how many times, but uh, Chris was very patient and Hope was very patient. So thank you both. Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram at Benny J Show and all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.